So you have to decide as a company, if you want to try to land a channel, you need to tie it to their results. You need to report on it and be meeting and have visibility on that thing, right? And you need to give people autonomy to bring their voice to the channel and, and to activate around that. We all strive for more nowadays, more traffic, more revenue, more growth. In this never-ending battle for more, it's easy to forget what's important. So what is important? Building real relationships with real humans and trying to be better each day without caring quite so much about getting more. After all, by building real and meaningful relationships, you'll have way more than you ever need. The SaaS SEO Show is a platform for meaningful connections and honest conversations with people who are real, hardworking practitioners and high performers in the SaaS industry. We're here to learn and get inspired by them, and we hope you do too. Now, here's your host, George Cassiotis. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the SaaS SEO Show. I'm your host, George Cassiotis, and today I'm very happy to be joined by Casey Hill. Casey is a growth veteran with over a decade of experience in helping software companies scale fast. Whether it's generating millions of views on Quora and LinkedIn or pioneering new growth levers like booking his team on hundreds of podcasts. Casey is always looking for creative and value-led ways to grab attention and break from the mold. In his current role leading growth at ActiCampaign, uh, he is building organic growth engines to propel the team to 1 billion in ARR. Casey, welcome. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. I realized that there weren't many things about uh, your background in the intro. So uh, could you could you share a few things about your 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 journey, uh, kind of a few milestones that were important and that uh, led to the role you have today at Act Active Active Campaign? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I've been in the software world for about 12 years. So uh, that's kind of where I've cut my chops. I worked for several companies, including companies that have gotten acquired like Tech Validate when I kind of was just kicking off my career. Um, and I've worked heavily in the MarTech and marketing automation world. So I've worked with a lot of tools that serve SMBs, small to mid-sized businesses around kind of marketing functionality. And so that's kind of been the state of my career in both sales and marketing roles within those organizations. And then along the way, I've also done a handful of interesting things. I've taught at university um, around content marketing. I've done institutional consulting. So initially started with working with um, GLG and GuidePoint and some kind of uh, like middleman companies that connect you into institutional opportunities. And then started later on just working directly with some of these VC firms um, in, in that kind of capacity and, and working specifically on where I have my deepest area of expertise, which is organic growth, SaaS trends, SaaS pricing, SaaS churn, all of that uh, type of fun stuff. And I've also launched two separate e-commerce businesses, one, a physical e-commerce business that I launched via Kickstarter, 800% funded, and then took that through a direct-to-consumer and retail phase, as well as an online course business um, that I launched a few years ago that was basically packaging together a lot of these organic channel strategies that I'd learned and then selling that direct to consumer. Um, and now today, uh, active campaign doing organic growth work. So trying to create those long tail mechanisms, those cumulative levers that continue to provide scalable growth for a much larger organization. Okay, sounds to me that you've done many different things, uh, but I would like to, to ask about um, institutional uh, consulting and and ask what 
what is that exactly uh, and what many maybe learnings you got from that that you then applied to to the SaaS world? Yeah, for sure. Great question. So institutional consulting is basically with an institution or a firm, right? So regular consulting, a small business hops on and I talk to them about, you know, website conversion or using email. Institutional consulting might be a venture capital fund is looking to make a $100 million series investment and they want to bring in experts to understand that space better. They might not be MarTech experts themselves. So they basically have a budget to go out there and learn about that market, learn about the main competitors, learn if a company is sales-led or marketing-led, learn about as much as they can, the people within those organizations, where that company is kind of niched down. And that's where I kind of came in. Because I've served in this MarTech space for so long, I have a deep understanding of the different players, where they're positioned, what kind of ICPs they serve, what kind of trends we're seeing in the market. So they would essentially reach out and they would schedule consultations. Sometimes it'd be a project, so it'd be a series of consultations, or sometimes even just a single call. They would basically connect you onto a line with those folks um, from all over the world. And you would sit down for an hour or three hours and basically work through these specific questions that those firms had to better inform their investments um, and how they were kind of making calculated decisions. So that's kind of how the institutional consulting functions. I see that active campaign buys, uh, or at least I saw one acquisition that you you guys did uh, not a while ago. I don't know. Uh, we w- would you say that this um, the fact that you have experience with um, this type of consulting does it help in evaluating uh, SaaS companies that uh, are possible acquisition targets? Yeah, I imagine it would. I mean, for transparency, I'm relatively new to the organization, so I wasn't behind the last two acquisitions. We just acquired OneSend, which helps basically multi-location businesses and adds a lot of awesome functionality for franchisees and um, companies that are built like that using ActiveCampaign. And before that, the year before, we acquired Postmark, which is a best-in-class tool in the transactional email space. Um, so it's definitely been part of the strategy as Active Campaign grows to find companies that provide robust functionality for our users and bring them under the fold. So yes, that would absolutely be part of the type of thing that I would be looking at. Uh, but as someone who's very new to the organization, I, I can't claim credit for those two specific acquisitions. Yeah, of course. Um, let me take a step back and ask uh, for people who have never heard of Active Campaign before nor used its uh, product. Can you please give us a quick, you know, uh, overview of what the company is um, and like who is a typical customer who gets the most value out of its products. Yeah, for sure. So Active Campaign is a marketing automation and CRM system kind of baked into one at a core level. And to provide a little bit maybe perspective, I first started using Active Campaign firsthand at my last startup. And so our situation was essentially we were using kind of two basic tools to be as cost effective as possible as a 25 person startup does. So we had HubSpot free CRM, which was our CRM tool. And then we were using MailChimp for our automation sequences. And it we just got to a point where that was a huge headache. We had to have separate integrations for both. And then we had to have them talking to each other. And there wasn't kind of one single source of truth. So we started looking for options to essentially upgrade and have one consolidated system. And that's what led us initially to active campaign. So I think one of the things that is a good one of the factors that makes folks a good fit for a tool like active campaign is for people that have some familiarity with basic automation, but they're looking to kind of upgrade and have a more consolidated solution. So like Bonjora, my last startup, they came to active campaign 
We really liked the fact that they had the segment integration because we were a SaaS company. And as a SaaS company, we wanted to be able to look at what people were doing inside of the tool and have that connected to lead scoring and communications that we had with folks. So having deeper logic, having that integration ecosystem, and then also having our CRM and our marketing piece both under one tool was a tremendous value. So we serve over 170,000 customers all over the world. So we work with a lot of niches. We work with SaaS, e-commerce, creators, agencies, so a bunch of different markets. But I think the common thread is folks that are looking to kind of upgrade past a basic email tool and and bring that together. You have vast experience with, with SaaS companies and my First question uh, here would be, do you think that, or do you see that it gets more difficult for SaaS companies to acquire uh, new customers? Yeah. I mean, the basic answer to that is, is yes, right? We've seen a lot of headwinds coming, especially over the last 12 months in acquisition. There's a lot of things that feed that. A lot of people, paid has become highly competitive, especially in SaaS, where you have a small number of players fighting for the same core keywords and territory. Um, PPC and SEM, is becoming very, very expensive. So yes, we see a lot of headwinds there. We see a lot of folks looking for alternative ways to bring down customer acquisition costs, to be efficient. Saster famously keeps using the word like the year of efficient SaaS has been you know, dropped dozens and dozens of times by different speakers and by Jason Lemkin himself. And so I think this is where folks are kind of changing their gears of how do we create long-term sustainable growth um, and also adapt to the times, knowing that we have AI flooding the market with content, right? Knowing that there's these constant algorithm changes that are coming and affecting our presence on different channels. So folks are starting to look more at what are owned assets that I can have and, and going through the kind of motions and gears there. And also figuring out how do we create a compelling upsell motion? How do we create more growth within our existing base? Can we implement usage-based pricing models that help us scale up with our existing customers? And so it's not just purely acquisition focused. So there's a whole bunch of components and you know we could probably spend hours just unpacking that. But the short answer is there's definitely acquisition headwinds in 2023 for software companies. Don't you think that, um, especially with some channels like paid search, <laughs> excuse me, it's sort of like a dead end because I mean, CACs are on the rise, right? Uh, especially for categories that are sort of mature. And I would say email marketing and marketing automation are quite of uh, quite mature um, categories. And then you, you acquire customers, but you know, will you get your money back? I guess this is a concern I have lately because companies, some companies are quite aggressive when it comes to acquisition and they are willing to pay, you know, the rising CACs uh, for some channels, especially uh, paid search. But is like, does the LTV and the payback period make any sense any longer? I don't know what's your experience with that, but I would like to hear your thoughts. Yeah. So it's very interesting. And you do see a lot of companies, even, you know, like with recent IPOs, you see some pretty long payback periods. Uh, I remember when I was kind of going through some of those documentation, seeing things like a 28-month payback period, you're like, whoa, that's that's pretty wild. I mean, generally, the rule of thumb right now is you want to try to, if you're SMB-focused specifically, I think there's a little bit of difference between enterprise-focused brands and SMP-focused brands. If you're SMP-focused, you really want to have an 8- to 12-month 
payback period, right? And even though historically the ratio has always been three to one is what people have thrown away around for LTV to CAC, I actually see that even being sharpened now to say four to one LTV to CAC. So there, there's some of these motions are, are shifting gears a little bit. Um, but I would say that as you're developing your strategy, making sure that you're not, you don't have such a crazy burn rate and that you're looking and the only way that you hit these numbers is with these crazy long payback periods. I think that's a dangerous place to be um, in the current market. And unless you have significant ecosystem entrenchment and you have a strong enterprise uh, client base that tends to serve those long payback periods, I would be really cautious there. That makes sense. Um, Do you think we are past the point where new SaaS companies can enter a mature category uh, like email marketing and actually find their spot in the market if, especially if they are not in the position of like ClickUp, uh, which sort of bought their way in uh, the category of project management, right? And productivity. Um, so I guess my, my question is, do you think that we're past the point where things are too difficult for new uh, players to enter the game? It's a good question. I mean, the short answer is I never will say that it's too late for people to enter into any market because there's always folks that can niche down and they can get very, very specific on a specific vertical. And because most tech is built to be fairly wide, there's always going to be those niche opportunities where a company will get in there and be able to capture some small part of that TAM. I will say, though, that I do think that with the advent of AI, AI has a massive benefit to companies that have larger data sets. So when you think about smart optimization, the more data points that a company is processing, the more competitive advantage that that team will have. So I think that actually not only is the category very sophisticated, but with the increasing focus on AI, it's also another massive disadvantage to new market entrants into a very mature market who are fighting against a company that has billions and billions of data points that they can then feed into these algorithms for smart optimization. So the short answer, I think, for something like like this space of email marketing or marketing automation is um, it's challenging as a new entrant. But if I was doing it and I was trying to get into one of these markets with a new company, I would focus on getting very, very specific niche down and try to build a platform that specifically has functionalities to serve that, that small sliver of the market. You mentioned Bonjoro earlier, and I would like to ask something. Um, do you obviously there is a big difference between a company like Bonjoro, which is uh, not as you know popular, doesn't have such a big of a brand like Active Campaign? And my question is, do you think that some things in your control may be working better um, despite the dire economic situation and the? recession or not recession, I don't want to get into that conversation, but that's because it's active campaign, right? It's the brand behind uh, like the, the tool and everything that makes it work, right? Uh, do you do you ever think about that? Yeah, I mean, small versus... The, the quick answer to this is that there's a lot of differences between startups and more mature brands, and there's trade-offs on both sides. So a larger brand, not only do you have more recognition in the market that you can capitalize, there's a lot of more resourcing that you have, not just from a financial standpoint, but also from a team standpoint. Anyone who comes from the startup world, this is where I've spent the vast majority of my career, 
knows that you're wearing a lot of hats, right? You're doing a lot of things. Roles are very dynamic. And oftentimes you're kind of just running and you're trying to pivot and adapt in real time, but you have to keep that momentum. You have to be running at all times, right? As you grow, there's more specialization, right? So I came from Bonjoro where I was running growth to now coming into active campaign, we have a corporate marketing team, an affiliate marketing team, a lifecycle marketing team, a content marketing team, a paid marketing team, right? There's all of these different subsets that are able to drill down. Um, so that comes with its own challenges in terms of, of kind of coordinating and working across departments, but also it comes with tremendous advantage because you can now mobilize 50 people to all go say, hop in and engage on content or to amplify different things that you're producing. So. I don't really think of it as one is necessarily concretely better than the other. I just think that both startups and mature companies have strengths and weaknesses. Yes, that that makes sense. Um, Having said that, how do you stay focused though? I mean, you have all these resources, you have all these, you know, people, all these channels, this, this reach. How do you stay focused on the things that matter and that can actually uh, help the company get to 1 billion ARR and beyond. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think one thing is having a lot more people as part of a team helps you focus on just very specific jobs. It's more, it's easier than in a startup, right? In a startup, you always feel like you're kind of being pulled out into these other things that need attention. I've actually found since joining Active Campaign that one of the great things is I can stay hyper-focused on this lane of opening up new organic channels. And as I go about that, I think you have to look at leading indicators in these channels as you build them out. Some things are going to have short timeframes for return and some things are going to have long timeframes, right? So if you're building an owned asset like a podcast or you're building a community out, those have long time horizons. You should not get into one of those plays if you don't have at least two quarters to see that flush out and to see that build. I tell people that right off the bat. And there's other things that you can build that might have a faster turnaround time. If product puts together, say, a micro product that you're going to then promote pretty quickly within, you know, you launch that within a month, you'll see what kind of impact and leads that can generate. So there's different time horizons on those different plays. Um, But I think that you look at leading indicators, you try to look at things that are meaningful. So you might look at impressions and say, impressions is kind of just a vanity metric. But if we look at inbound, if we look at, say, inbound DMs, if we look at comments, if we look at indicators of real engagement, And then we use things like direct attribution to understand how many contacts are coming into our ecosystem from social, from these posts that have heard about us on podcasts or have seen content. I think all of those become kind of part of the equation. And one thing I believe really strongly um, is with a company at scale, it's super important to think about layering as well. And what I mean by that very specifically is when I think about LinkedIn, we attack LinkedIn. That's one of the channels that I focus on. We attack LinkedIn from many different directions. So we mobilize our whole team to post thought leadership. We have 47 people as part of Operation LinkedIn, which is an internal Slack channel. And we're coaching and helping people build that topical authority. But then we also have a campaign called Social Amplification, where we're getting our customers to hop on LinkedIn and share their stories. Why are they using uh, Active Campaign? Why did they choose Active Campaign? What are success stories they've had? And in addition to that, we're running thought leadership ads. So we're promoting content on a paid front to increase visibility. And we're trying to change this narrative. What if ads weren't all just push? What if there was actual real value in ads? What if ads could help people and be educational? That's a concept that I find very exciting 
in a world where ads tend to just be like, go check out my product. If we could take that paid spend and have that create actual education, that's exciting. So when I look at a channel like LinkedIn, we're monitoring the KPIs, the leading indicators, as we kind of build this channel out, but we're also attacking it from three different angles to maximize the chances that we land um, a channel-specific approach like that. Have you ever uh, tried a channel that didn't work out as well and you gave it the time? I, I understand that there are different time horizons for a channel and even initiative, but you gave it time and uh, you did your best, but it just didn't work out well and you just decided to uh, stop like investing in that channel or initiative? All the time. Yeah, all the time. So uh, Twitter, now X, I guess, wasn't the best fit for me personally. I think that my content, I tend to focus on replicability and I like to go really in depth and show like, this is exactly what I did. Twitter is more short form. So that just didn't fit my style. So I wasn't able to get as much traction on that. And then there's tons of niche communities, niche Slack communities, Facebook groups that I'm testing all the time. Um, and some of those, many of those don't pan out. So it's part of this experimentation. You have the bigger a channel is, the more competition it has, but potentially also the more impact it has. So you're having to make this calculation between you want to try to find that sweet spot. If you can find a channel that has pretty good reach, but has a little bit less competition, sometimes that can be the perfect spot to go. And so a good example of also a channel that was effective and then wasn't effective for me was Quora. So I generated millions of views on Quora and early on around say 2019 to like 2021, I think I actually drove a ton of business attention through Quora. And then towards the end of 2021, going into 2022, that channel just stopped. I, I had the velocity of views, but it stopped driving meaningful business. And eventually I had to kind of look at this and say, we're not getting attributed trials. We're not getting attributed end of funnel metrics tied to this. So I needed to basically slowly stop using that as one of my primary channels. And even today, I still get 30 to 50,000 views uh, per month on that just from old content. But I had to stop a focus there because of the fact that it just wasn't driving the momentum that I wanted. You mentioned Operation LinkedIn. And one common thing in the discussions I have with our clients and like partners, companies we are connected with, when it comes to LinkedIn is that, and like getting your team uh, to, you know, uh, go out there and talk about like uh, some of the stuff, stuff that the company is talking about and, and have a voice, let's say, is that uh, there is pushback or, or to put it differently, there is little to no interest in, in, in doing that, right? As if it's not part of the role. And I guess my question is, do you have any practical advice on how to get your team excited and on board um, and not just like push people to do something that they don't want to do, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, so it's a complex question, mobilizing teams. I think a, a couple things are important to it. First off, I think people want to see results and that can mean different things for different folks. If you're a salesperson, if you're trying to get your sales team involved in LinkedIn, try to see how you can tie this into their quota. What's the actual benefit of for your team to do this thing and make sure you create that connection? Because at the end of the day, if you're a salesperson and someone is going to show you how you could be hitting quota by using that channel, that's going to be a lot more exciting than just encouraging people to be like repurposing blog content or that type of thing. So one is try to understand the result. The second thing is many people, they make it way too prescriptive on what people are going to post about. 
I'm a strong advocate of encouraging your team to post about what they have expertise on. That's going to be different for marketing, for sales, for HR, for engineering. Like all these departments are going to be different. So part of it is if you create too strict of guidelines, people are just, you know, they, they pull back. It's like people don't want to just be sitting there regurgitating generalized company content. So I think it's really important for folks to think through how you enable your team. The third component is employees respond to what is incentivized at a core level. So if you come into this project of trying to get your team mobilized for LinkedIn and it's all just relying on goodwill and you're just like, hey, we'd really like if you did this for the good of the company. But every time that person has their quarterly review or every time they're meeting with their managers, LinkedIn's never discussed. It's not like looked at or addressed in terms of any form, like specific metric. It's not going to get attention, right? So you have to decide as a company, if you want to try to land a channel, you need to tie it to their results. You need to report on it and be meeting and have visibility on that thing, right? And you need to give people autonomy to bring their voice to the channel and, and to activate around that. And honestly, it's a uncomfortable muscle for a lot of people, especially when I tell people the most important thing on LinkedIn is to post firsthand experiences and specific data. Those are the two things that are the most important. And sometimes that's hard. People are like, oh, I don't know. Like, can I share my open rate from this last campaign? Can I share my subject line? Is that, am I going to get in trouble? So there's an onus on leadership within an organization to pull back that curtain and say, hey, this is okay. You can share out these pieces of information. This is part of how you're going to build real trust and authority in your space. And then I try to find micro ways to celebrate people. I have what I call the 10K club. 10K club means you hit 10,000 impressions for that week. And every week we look at all the content that's been gathered in Operation LinkedIn and we celebrate our 10K club members and we you know do a little shout out to them and maybe share their content. So there's this idea of trying to celebrate and provide visibility so people feel encouraged and feel that momentum of like, I was starting out, I was getting 300 views a week and now I hit the 10K club. They, they see that growth and they get excited about it, right? So it's multifaceted. It's not trivial. Um, and ultimately, I guess the final thing I'll say on this is if the leadership in an organization does not genuinely believe and trust in experimenting on the channel, it's not going to work. So make sure going in, you have that buy-in because if you don't have that buy-in, it's always going to be like one or two people that are really motivated, trying to rally everyone else, always hitting hurdles because they don't have the ability to actually deliver on those incentives. And then it just never goes anywhere. So it's it's not an easy challenge, but I think it can be a very powerful channel and not just LinkedIn, but but Reddit and all these other uh, channels as well, if you have a concerted team focus that is committed to it. That's all very practical. And uh, it's, it's, it's great to hear you like uh, breaking this down because this goes back to many discussions we have internally and discussions with like clients, as I mentioned previously. And I like it. Um, what are your thoughts on organic search and, and SEO on the current state of it and even in the future state of it? Yeah, I mean, it's such a interesting time um, to be in the world of SEO, right? I mean, you see uh, the rate of content production has just gone off the charts. You have AI is flooding the space with content. Um, and you have companies, like we were just talking about LinkedIn, they're doing things like they've generated tens of thousands of now these collaborative articles. 
where people are now pitching in. And I, I'm reading some data that that's actually generating millions and millions of views for them. So it's a very interesting time in SEO. I'll start by saying everyone kind of tends to have these alarmist like email is dead, SEO is dead, X is dead, right? SEO will always be a thing. There will always be content that is served up based on search, but it's going to fundamentally change. Even before this advent of AI, we already saw the zero click content was becoming more and more of a thing, right? And there was this conversation of how big is voice going to become and all these other factors, right? And this was even before this huge flood that has now come and these tests that are already running um, with AI right now. So I think SEO will always be a thing, but you're going to have to adapt. You're going to have to learn what are the new signals. Maybe things like social are going to become bigger variables. There's going to be all sorts of different changes. And my recommendation to folks is not to throw SEO out the window, but instead is to make sure you're adapting to those times. Make sure you're not using the old playbook. What I feel confident won't work is going back two to three years and just doing the standard keyword playbook where you essentially try to find those opportunities, go out, spit out the content, and it's like this high level kind of generalized content. That is not going to win in 2023 and 2024 and beyond. So you're going to have to get much more exacting and you're going to have to make sure that you are tying in with the new ways of how people consume content. Because ultimately, it's all about how people consume content and you need to serve up content that is digestible in the way that consumers operate. That all makes sense. Um, what about content from... One of the pro, one of the things that I believe were and still are to a certain extent problematic with how uh, SaaS companies do content marketing is that um, content marketing for the most part was whatever uh, we are doing on the blog and whatever is that we are doing on the blog equals SEO, right? SEO content, let's say, even though I do not subscribe to the term. And I think that this needs to change, right? And we have some um, few examples of that. Um, however, for the most part, this playbook that you know, belong to the past is still um, applied by by many companies. Uh, I guess my question is, what other content like types and formats would you say companies companies should experiment with uh, beyond uh, SEO content? Yeah, there's a couple. I mean, we were just talking about social, but another one that's really interesting is kind of communities, right? So we see the birth and the growth of all these different micro communities all over. And it's a very interesting way that people are starting to consume information. They're niching down and they're finding these targeted groups that really resonate and really speak to how they tend to operate. And so outside of standard blog, I think you're going to start to see more and more of these alternative external channels, be those different social channels that are, are, are popping up all the time. We've seen many of these new ones like TikTok and stuff enter into the phase and there will be a constant drip of more and more of those that will pop up. And connected to that, I think we need to think about how companies organize themselves and what kind of structures they build. And that's where I think it'll be very interesting to study community growth and see how does that function? What kind of content is being produced out by communities? So those are two areas that I think will become interesting, um, two areas that will both impact SEO um, in the year ahead. Even though you have a very big team um, at Active Campaign. I would like to ask your thoughts on outsourcing um, and whether you have any tips uh, for folks who are listening and running teams 
on how to find the best like partners and uh, you know get the most out of the relationship with the vendor. Yeah, for sure. So um, we use um, freelancers, we use outside folks, agencies, all sorts of things like that for targeted needs. And I've used agencies throughout my entire career in different capacities. I think the challenges that I find, number one is you want to find folks that have as relevant to your stage experience as possible is the first piece. So this is not only industry, right? You want to make sure that, you know, if you're a SaaS company, you want to make sure someone has a SaaS background, but there's also a huge variance in SaaS. Someone who's helped a company go from zero to 1 million ARR is very different from someone who's taken a company from 100 million to a billion ARR. They're just organizationally, functionally, across the board, they're just completely different challenges. So you not only need to find the right niche focus, but you also need to find the right size focus. Um, And then I've found that a lot of agencies spend a lot of time on strategy. So one of the challenges I've had as a consultant, as an agency, It's not that I don't think the strategy is important. You need to plan. You need to understand your target market, all of those pieces. But what you don't want is the agency that has already billed you five figures and there's no deliverables. We're still in the planning phase. We're still in the understand your strategic goal phase. In some ways, that is the easy part. They're guiding you through the steps to gather those pieces together. But what really gets hard is when you take that and you actually apply it in execution. So I've worked with, like I said, dozens and dozens and dozens of freelancers and agencies through the years. And what I like, what I find is a winning recipe is not only that affinity, but people who are willing to get in, jump in and start delivering results quickly and are able to start just executing, right? So that would be the cautionary tale of where I would advise people to be aware. That makes sense. And I would say you're spot on. Um... I would like to discuss competition uh, for a moment, if if you feel comfortable with that. Uh, now, obviously, you're working at a big company, and uh, as a big company, you you have like big competitors, right? In all of the different uh, categories that uh, active campaign can be, let's say, uh, added to and com- competes against these these faults. Do you ever think about competition and like how closely do you monitor competition and how like concerned are you with the things they are doing? Yeah, I do think competition is important. You want to understand your market. The more that you understand your market, the more that you can have marketing and sales that is relevant and applicable to the people that are coming through the door. Uh, I know that in my past role when I was training and running a sales team also in this MarTech space, I was constantly, every week we were meeting up and we were reviewing all the big changes going on in the industry. So when we walked into calls, we weren't like every other sales team that has like a generic understanding of these tools and says things that are often super old, like, oh, that company doesn't do X, Y, Z when they actually do. And so there's a lot of that in the market. There's a lot of very inexperienced marketing and a lot of very inexperienced sales teams. So I think as a first order of business, understand and know your market. I think that's important. There's a um, app called Crane app that can actually give you updates from other companies about pricing changes, uh, product updates that are happening through those uh, through those companies. And so we do monitor all of that so we can make sure that we stay up to date and know what's going on. For active campaign, we kind of exist at this uh, mid spot in the market. You can think of the fact that we have downstream competitors. So downstream competitors would be folks like Constant Contact or ConvertKit or MailChimp, right? More basic systems on the marketing side, or you might have things like Insightly, Copper, 
pipe drive, et cetera, on the CRM side. And then you have upmarket competitors. So you have Salesforce, you have HubSpot, you have Adobe Marketing, you have, you have the kind of more sophisticated enterprise stack of solution. So Active Campaign exists in that kind of center point, working to serve small businesses, but small businesses that are familiar with marketing automation. This isn't their first rodeo. They're typically not starting with Active Campaign before they've ever sent an automated email, but they're looking at those basic solutions and they're like, my company at this stage needs something a little bit more robust and comprehensive. So that's where we exist in this overall uh, delta. And I think especially it's an interesting thing when you look at competitors because you could almost think of there's like high, there's like strong positive sentiment competitors and there's low sentiment competitors, right? So as you look at the market, I think that's also an important thing to understand is where's the relative popularity of different brands, right? Because that can ebb and flow. And if you have a very large company that has not the most positive sentiment, right? And some of the companies that have been in the market for a long time, like Constant Contact or MailChimp, unfortunately kind of fall into that category. Those are often really good grounds for companies that have a strong incentive to make that graduation step, right? Versus if you go after really popular uh, solutions in the market, like HubSpot, I think is a good example. Um, that can potentially work, but it's a tougher slog because there's a lot of pro sentiment and kind of in that space. So I think about competitors all the time. I think it's important. I don't think that it should blind you to be the only thing that guides your roadmap, but I do think being aware and understanding the unique value that you as a company bring to the market and having that compelling why you reason that's very clear for folks to see, I think that's important and will help you win business. Uh, you kind of touched on AI uh, earlier, but I would like to ask you, what are your thoughts on AI and whether you have found any like use cases for uh, your current role? Yeah. I mean, I use AI right now in my own role heavily as like a research tool. I find it incredibly valuable. You know, I was writing a post on feature bloat and I can basically go to it and I can say, what prominent C-class executives in the SaaS space have talked about feature bloat? Boom, boom, boom. Huge list. Okay. What podcasts were they on where they mentioned that? And it will literally just give me as many specific listings as possible. I always go and double check because as any of us who have used AI know, sometimes AI will lie to you. Um, but I find that actually surprisingly about 90% of the time it is accurate. And so it's an incredible tool to buy and bring in authority. One of the things I think about a lot is when I produce content, I think content strategies tend to focus a lot on peaking curiosity and grabbing attention. And I don't think they focus enough on trust and authority. So if you're looking to grab trust and authority, you do that through specifics and data, and you do that through what other prominent people, prominent individuals in your space who other people already have trust in. If they don't maybe have as much trust in you, who do they trust? And how can you pull that insight in? AI can be a phenomenal tool to help you do both of those, right? And I am incredibly excited. I can't, you know, disclose or talk about all the different things that we're going to be dropping with AI, but there's some remarkably exciting things that I think will be industry shifting that are going to come in from Active Campaign. And it's again this byproduct of this huge data pool, right? One of the largest SMB data pools in this space we have. And so that allows us to build some incredible optimization um, on the AI front. And I really like that we're not just checking the box. So many companies today are just checking the box. They basically come in, they put in a basic co-pilot functionality where they basically say, like, we bring ChatGPT into your designer. 
which is fine. We do that too. We have that right now at Active Campaign. Most of the marketing companies have just some, done some degree of that. I'm not saying that you know you shouldn't do that, but that's table stakes, right? Those basic things are table stakes. It's going to be the companies that really take it to the next level is where it gets exciting um, in in my mind. And so I think AI will be a huge part of strategy for companies moving forward. But I think people should remember to use it as a tool and not as a replacement for bringing in firsthand experience, for bringing in creativity. You need to understand the limitations of that um, apparatus as you move forward. Before we uh, wrap things up, I would like to ask your thoughts on the future of uh, growth for SaaS companies. And you could draw a picture uh, as to like how uh, growth will look like uh, in the near future for SaaS companies. Um, and of course, you know, this is your opinion, right? And what you uh, believe the future will, will, will look like. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think long tail growth is going to be vital for the companies that find the most success. So when you look at things like uh, net recurring revenue, NRR rates, right? People who have NRR over 100%, they've gotten this strong core apparatus where they've brought churn down and they've brought upsells up and expansion revenue up. So the first thing is I'd be thinking a lot as a company, how can I create long tail growth? Some of that could be through fundamentals, right? You're tamping down churn, you have more touch points where you're allowing, where you're pushing for expansion. Maybe you have a pricing model that facilitates that. But from a go-to-market side, it means what are you focused on, right? SEO is a long tail channel because it continues to pay dividends and it's cumulative, right? And if you go from a domain rank of 20 to a domain rank of 90, that's probably going to have some impact on your business. Similarly, if you build an owned asset, like a newsletter or a podcast or something that you have control over, that often starts very small, but it's long tail, meaning that it's cumulative. It continues to stack and grow over time. So I think companies that are thinking strategically about long tail, that's going to be a huge component of growth. The second part that I think is really important is distribution to me is vital uh, to success in our current age if you want to have a strong growth engine. So more and more people are going to be looking at how can I work with partners? How can I work with influencers? How can I work with customers to help create that engine? And I think the companies that do that very effectively are going to get growth that is substantially more efficient. And it kind of comes down to a little bit of what I was talking about with LinkedIn when I talked about our social amplification play. If we have dozens and dozens of customers each week who are posting about Active Campaign, why they love Active Campaign, and that's not coming from us, that's coming from them, and that's not paid, right? That's just people we're, you know, having conversations, encouraging them to share. That is incredibly powerful. And that's essentially $0 customer acquisition costs of people coming through the door from that advocacy. So if you can really take care of customers, invest in customers, create that organic growth engine, I think that's really powerful. So I would say that I would strongly encourage folks to look at long tail and to look at distribution and to understand that there is going to be strong headwinds and to be very cautious. Anytime you hear advice also, and this includes advice that comes from me, understand where that company is coming from. If that company is sitting on $100 million in funding, $500 million in funding, they're not the same as you who's bootstrapped, who's doing everything you know, without a dime to your name, right? And so they can operate in different ways. And when you look at, you mentioned ClickUp, Monday.com is another famous one that was spending over 100% of revenue on, on kind of their marketing and sales motion. Those companies can operate fundamentally different and so it's important as you digested advice 
to understand that and then to kind of put that into perspective. But it's also a tie-in of why the organic motions are so powerful. Because inherently, by being organic motions, we're talking about things that aren't just involving a heavy amount of paid spend. So I think that I think that hopefully some of the things we talked about today are applicable regardless of your business stage. I'm sure I'm sure they are. Um, last question I have for you, Casey: Where can people find out more and get in touch if they'd like to? Yeah. So two things I always let uh, folks know: Number one is LinkedIn. I'm posting a ton on LinkedIn about organic growth. So if you just type in Casey Hill, C-A-S-E-Y, last name Hill, H-I-L-L, you can find me, the one who works at Active Campaign, and I'm posting a lot of stuff around conversion rate optimization, SaaS, pricing, email, um, everything in that kind of domain. And folks are also welcome to drop me an email. My email is chill, C-H-I-L-L, at activecampaign.com. So if you have questions either about the stuff we were talking about today or Active Campaign as a platform, feel free to drop me a line and happy to provide guidance there. This was a very interesting episode. I'm, I'm really glad we brought you on and that you agreed, of course, uh, to come on. Uh, so thank you very much. And um, yeah, uh, looking forward to a follow-up discussion sometime in the future. Absolutely. Thank you. Another episode of the SaaS SEO Show has wrapped. We hope this episode has taught you something new too. We'd like you to connect with us so you can keep up with all the new content that we're creating. Before you go, it would mean the world to us if you could subscribe to this podcast and over at our YouTube channel, where we upload the video version of this and every episode. Until next time.